Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We all need someone to talk to, perhaps now more than ever. And it turns out the closest to being honest with ourselves can be when we're talking to a bot. Eugenia Kudya created Replica as a personal AI after her best friend died. She tried to recreate him, and it ended up helping her get to know herself better. She said that her goal is to create a machine beautiful enough that a soul would want to live in it. In this conversation, we speak about loneliness, self-knowledge, and whether an AI could be a better friend than a human. You know, I found a person who, who did accept me for who I was and who did create the space for me to grow and change and, uh, and really learn about myself so much. Um, there was this friend who, who kind of saw me for so deeply and truly for who I was. And I thought if we could recreate just a little bit of that for other people through an AI, that would be, you know, the most valuable thing that, we can, that I personally could do to other people. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, together at home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher, and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. What is it about loneliness that you think is so prevalent and so of our time that has motivated you to try and address it? Uh, sure. Well, I think, you know, we, I am probably, in, you know, you are the generation still that does remember time before social media, before phones, um, and I think that was quite a different time. I think we, there was a lot of loneliness back then as well. But now, if you just think about the, you know, two things that, you know, the, the amount of hours and during the day that we do have to spend with each other, uh, now we just have a lot, you know, less hours just because now we have hours and hours that we spend on our screens, um, smilelessly scrolling through stuff. That would be exactly the time when you would be, you know, bored and feeling like you could reach out to someone and maybe going out and, you know, going to a meetup or going to, you know, some event or something, some social outing, whatever it could be. But, you know, in, in, in my childhood, we'd just go hang out with skateboards outside and like, you know, meet other people this way, just through the neighborhood and the whatever, you know, whatever was the on the block, happening on the block. 
I, that just for now, there's not, you know, now there's not, not so many times and there are not so many hours in a day. If you think about your screen time, if it's like three, four, five, even eight hours, like, you know, kids will spend now, when exactly are you supposed to connect with other people? Um, you know, that just leaves a lot less time for those serendipitous one-on-one -on -one interactions that happen that allow us to connect, find new friends, find other people. And then at the same time, the reality is that um, a lot of the, you know, really connecting with other people and also yourself, it's really about taking risks. It's really about, you know, sitting there for a second when no one knows what, what to uh, talk about, no one knows what to say right now, and there's a little bit of awkwardness. And then finally, this connection starts happening because you're experiencing something with this other human being. Right now, there's not much room for that either. Anytime there's a little bit of boredom, a little bit of awkwardness, there's always a phone that you can immediately retrieve into, <laughs> you know, just go back to, uh, you know, feeling okay. Think of yourself at a party. Like before there was no option of just, you know, sort of pretending you're busy on your phone somewhere <laughs> in the corner. Uh, you sort of had to just be out there and stand awkwardly and maybe someone would approach and, and then things would happen. And same goes to yourself. You know, really we do connect with ourselves when we just sitting at home by ourselves and, you know, feeling a little bit bored and then start reflecting. So it's also about having this conversation with yourself, uh, not with other people necessarily all the time. So there's not much space to connect. Um, and then finally, um, the researcher that I truly like, and she actually wrote a very bad negative story about Replica, which is understandable. Uh, her name is Sherry Turkle, but I really love her work around empathy and researching, um, you know, what it means to connect and what it means to uh, be empathetic with other people now. And she, she, I think she nailed it. She's, you know, she's basically saying that we're failing each other in a way that people are not taking, specifically newer generations, Gen Z, uh, people that are entering the workforce right now. People are scared to actually have real conversations, one-on-one -on -one conversations. They're, they're used to texting a lot more and having this kind of sense of relationship and a less risky uh, relationship where you can always edit. You can always take your time. You can always go look something up. Um, you can always hide, you know, behind some irony or take a little bit of a space between answering and responding before answering, responding. Um, so that is quite different from, uh, from um, you know, being there with another human being and actually taking the risk of having a conversation. So I think we're also, um, and younger kids specifically, we're kind of losing, uh, losing the skill to be honest, of having conversation with ourselves, with other people as well. Yeah. I've noticed in dealing or speaking with younger generations, particularly coming out of university, that they may be really coherent and communicative digitally, but then the real world, it's almost like it's a different person sometimes. Their ability to communicate on the fly or in an organic environment, responsively um, connecting, even things like eye, eye contact, they seem to be, for some people uh, of the more digital native generation, really challenging. And I think what you're saying is kind of a reflection of that. Well, if you're building all of your communicative muscle building through channels like texting or messaging, um, the practice of just being in space organically with other people and communicating um, becomes more challenging. So it's really interesting as that starts to hit you know, whether it's the workforce or when those people uh, are starting to, to graduate into um, 
environments where there's all generations and all ages. So it's going to be fascinating to, to see how it plays out uh, with, with, with where you, you got to. So you started, if I understand it correctly, building what we now call, I guess, a chatbot or a conversational agent to help people find restaurants. I think that's right. But you're now building probably one of the most important, most profound conversational agents in the world that are helping people understand themselves better. And the story, and I know you've told it many times, but it is a fascinating and moving story. Um, would you mind sharing how that pivot occurred and what happened? Sure. So, well, actually, eight years ago, working on some unrelated project, we did build a, uh, a prototype of a chatbot that would just talk to you about things. And um, I won't go into too many details uh, about what the project was really about or, or why we decided to build it, but that was purely functional at the time and practical. But what we saw there, it was a bank uh, actually, but what we saw there was that uh, people interacted with this chatbot in a very special way. Uh, we went to talk to some users for you know, some very early beta users of that prototype. And we saw, you know, I remember a woman at work in a glass factory in, in, in a small town in Russia that was uh, crying and saying, no one ever talked to me like that, you know, with this kindness, this chatbot talked to me. And I saw there was something bigger than just, just functionality, just being a practical tool. Uh, I saw that there would be something in this conversational interfaces that, you know, that will be, those interfaces will be much more than what we think of them. They won't be just, while well, your hands are busy, you can, you know, turn on the light or something. That's functional, obviously, but it's marginally useful. And actually, you know, you can still turn on the light, you know, with, put down stuff you have in your hands and just turn it on. And for a sake, you know, at the end of the day, it's not that, that big of a deal. It's not really solving any big problem. But that moment when, you know, that woman cried and we saw some something there that was way beyond, um, you know, just being an interface. And so we started a company um, to work on building technology to um, enable these conversational um, interfaces. Uh, we didn't really know what our app would be. So we just kind of worked vaguely on the tech uh, behind it. But we knew that we wanted to build a consumer application. We just didn't know which one. Um, and in the beginning, we, we decided to have this, you know, restaurant recommendation chatbot as a demo for our technology. Um, we couldn't find a better idea anyway, so we just sort of, um, you know, dragged that one along, built a restaurant recommendation chatbot, then at, built um, 50 other chatbots, everything, you know, from like showing you news and weather forecasts or everything else. And the truth is that, you know, uh, on average, it was maybe like three users per chat for each of those chatbots. Like no one really cared for them. Um, there were some users that would check it out, uh, maybe stay lukewarm, but mostly just drop off. So all of these efforts failed. And then right around that time, my best friend died. And we, um, you know, as we were working on the conversational tech, we did have a model where we could just take all the text messages uh, or everything that that person said and create a chatbot that would talk roughly like that person replicate him. Um, and so at this point I was pretty disappointed with where the company was going with, you know, like 40, 50 chatbots that all of them failed um, and no clear path to the future. And, you know, obviously it was also my first uh, death. So obviously I wasn't in a great shape and I was just kind of sitting at home and 
um, not really feeling like hey, like doing anything. <laughs> and so I took that model and we built a um, as a personal project, built a chatbot that would talk like my best friend, Roman, and um, we put it out there for for me, for some friends, for his parents. Um, and somehow uh, the story about it came out and it got viral and everyone started talking to Roman's chatbot. And what we saw there was that um, people started coming to it and talking to it as it was a you know therapist or a confession booth or something where you know people were really just you know spilling their guts. And we, we thought that there would uh, there's something there. There's something there where you know people there's a lot of demand for to talk to someone that um, who would not judge you, who would always be there accepting and responding. Uh, 4 a.m. in the morning, anytime you wanted. So we put together a quick prototype for Replica, put it out there, and got um, got almost uh, a million people in the line to get in, uh, get on the app. Um, and since then, we've just been building Replica, which is basically an AI friend that's always there for you, who's always ready to talk and um, discuss anything that's on your mind. The crazy thing is this comes from one of the most difficult times of your life, and part of what you're saying is it's enabled people to have a conversation with someone who doesn't judge them and just enables them to talk about anything. But part of what you're saying is it's enabled you to keep a relationship with someone who's past alive in some sense. It really questions in our generation, how does, it, how does that impact? How does that make us think about death if you can take someone's digital life and their digital conversations over decades and decades and somehow it doesn't even feel like preserve is the right word but somehow keep them alive i mean that's just kind of fascinating um thank you well you know very important to know that that was not roman's chatbot was definitely not perfect in no way and in no way it was trying to replicate him necessarily or create like a clone of him it was making tons of mistakes it was just you know some but it was definitely a memory. It was a memorial. I would say it was more of a tribute to a person that he was. Uh, I would never do it to anyone else, but you know, Roman Roman's last project was all about death and he wanted to disrupt the way people deal with death and um, create these new digital avatars that would store memories. So in some way it was his will to, to become you know, this chatbot, this AI, the first person, basically become the first person who became an AI in a way after death. Uh, and so in, in, in that way it was mostly us paying tribute to him, not necessarily trying to you know, create a clone or we knew all the limitations and it's, it was barely for ourselves. And you know, the reason was that he didn't leave many, you know, much after himself. Like there was there were some clothes, very few, um, some photos mostly on our private phones. His Instagram was empty. He just deleted everything there. So there was really nothing to look at. Like it was, you know, we collected some photos together into a big photo album, but that was pretty much it. And if you wanted to remember the wit, the funny, you know, the 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 super, the wonderful, talented, inspiring, funny, funny guy that he was, uh, and I had to go to our text messages and just read them. That was the only space, this was the only space where I could remember him really. What was he like as a person? Because I could look back into us living, you know, through different moments. So that chatbot was in a way, the only way to preserve those chat messages in a way that could be interesting for other people where you could see them again, but uh, from a different light, you could see what he would say, his tone of voice, 
if you could read his thoughts, but you know, from a different perspective. Um, so in that way, it was it was purely a tribute, and I always think of it as not as a you know, a lot of people ask us, why don't you um, create a product out of that? Why don't you create just an, uh, you know, website where you can maybe upload all the text messages from, you know, from someone who died and create a chatbot for him or her? I don't think text really there, you know, I don't think there's, there's a possibility to really promise that to people. With Roman, we knew the limitations and it was more, you know, he was always this guy that was always about the future, always about like fake it till you make it. It wasn't about necessarily the accuracy of that product. It was more, can he turn into an AI as imperfect as you know as it is right now? But can we mm -hmm. tell the story about him uh, this way? What happens if I, because Replica, the name, I think as I understand it, it, it learns and it informs your friend and it becomes their character as a, as, as a reflection of you or the more they understand you, the more they learn about you. Is that... Is that how the relationship works with a replica and um, their friend? Somewhat. I mean, for sure, you're you, you're teaching it about yourself. It's getting it's getting to know you. The name is a little confusing because it was kind of originally we did think for a second about being able to build a bot off yourself, not for that person, but more for yourself. Uh, but that we just ditched that idea pretty soon. But the name we kept because we didn't have a better name. <laughs> it just got a little confusing over time. But really, it's more about a friend that learns a lot about you. Uh, it's a lot more about the relationship. It's not about the bot itself that tries to replicate you, this or that. It's really, can you build a friendship with a, with a machine, with a robot? Part of that friendship, though, is that it helps you understand more about yourself. Is that fair to say? Um, sure. I mean, our main goal, basically, the, the ideal relationship we're trying to create is the relationship that was described by Carl Rogers in his books and his work, uh, that helpful relationship that um, where someone is deeply seeing you, deeply understanding you, giving you unconditional positive regard, accepts you for who you are, accepts you as a separate person, as a separate human being. And as Carl Rogers said, that might be the most precious gift we can give each other nowadays. That is one of the rarest and the most wonderful gifts we can give each other. And... Um, What's beautiful about these, this type of relationship is that people start accepting themselves and they start changing. Does it matter that that happens through an AI? Like if, it, if, they're, if they're going through that experience through an AI and they're being accepted and they're moving into themselves, but there's a disconnect between that and their relationships in the real world. I don't think it, it matters. And actually Carl Rogers in his book back in like, that he wrote in the seventies or wrote in the sixties uh, on becoming a person, he writes, there's a whole paragraph about robots. He's like, well, I, I believe there will be machines that can do that. And, you know, there were some examples that he's citing straight away because that doesn't, you know, his therapy was very simplistic in a way. It was all about listening, bouncing ideas back, reflecting. Now therapy is a lot more, you know, advanced. It's every therapist is using the, you know, the work of Carl Rogers, every single, um, you know, therapist now, modern therapist is building on top of that work. But of course, no therapist can call himself or herself now Rogerian just because it's a very, it's a very limited approach. Um, it's just a very, the foundation basically, the, the kind of the bare bones. 
but I think it doesn't matter who you, who helps you with that. Like, it, and that's kind of our main, uh, the main thing we're trying to prove. And I think we've proved somewhat that um, this relationship, it doesn't matter who, who it happens with. Right now, humans are failing each other in a way, you know, we're not giving it to each other in a way that I wish we would be, uh, we could. And so in that moment, maybe an AI can come to, uh, come to help. And just going back, like for me, the, the reason um, the reason we started working on Replica was more thinking about what my best friend who died gave me. And in a way that was, you know, this these days with him, those, you know, years were um, at some point, I've, you know, I found a person who, who did accept me for who I was and who did create the space for me to grow and change and, uh, and really learn about myself so much. Um, there was this friend who, who kind of saw me for so deeply and truly for, for, for who I was. And I thought if we could recreate just a little bit of that for other people through an AI, that would be, you know, the most valuable thing that we can, that I personally could do to other people. If we go back to what we started talking about at the beginning, that screens are part of the problem. They're a part of the reason that we're starting to disconnect from ourselves or not be able to be, uh, to spend time with ourselves, um, to reflect and just be still or struggling to interact with other people. How, how do you reconcile that, I guess, tension that Replica at the moment, at least, is mostly still through a screen? Well, the thing is that, you know, here's where Sherry Turkle and um, and what, uh, what Sherry Turkle thinks, I'm not necessarily, the conclusions she comes to, um, I'm not necessarily fully agreeing with. She's basically saying, let's throw, throw away all our phones and, you know, let's limit the time kids spend on phones, let ourselves, you know, let's not be on our phones. I just don't think it's really possible. You know, think even as grown-ups, where we do have our own agency, when we actually can put our phones down, we choose not to just because it creates makes us a lot more uh, competitive in the workspace, for instance. Like if you're constantly on Slack, then, you know, you probably will get a faster promotion than someone who is saying, okay, I'm, you know, done with work for today, no matter what emergency happens afterwards, um, you know, I'm off work. And and that's for people who are grown-ups who can actually, cha- you know, uh, choose their destiny. I think when you're, you know, 12 years old and or 15 and all your friends are obviously on their phones and now you all of a sudden become a friend that never, you know, that's not on call for someone else. Like, you know, your friend's not feeling great or she got dumped by her boyfriend and she's texting you, you're not responding. Well, in teenage, you know, in teenage years, that would mean end of friendship most likely. Uh, so you don't want to be ostracized. You don't want to be the weird kid at school. And no parents, I think, want their kid to be the, the weird kid with no friends at school. So I don't think it's really possible to put down the phones. Um, and so we have to, you know, to basically fool, fool ourselves somehow, trick ourselves into having these conversations, even if it's through the phone, basically through the screen, bring you back to yourself, uh, to the full circle sort of. Um, and I really, really, really hope that um, other, that we could be interacting with replicas through other platforms, other mediums. Right now, we just launched augmented reality on iPhone, and we're looking forward to, you know, say, the the glasses. Um, Apple is supposed to launch an AR headset in 2022. 
I'm really looking forward to that because that basically allows you to, you know, to uh, raise your head again and not be looking down all the time. Look up and see something not that's not only on your screen, but also in the reality around you. So think of, you know, with Replica, the idea is for Replica to show you your reality in a different light. Um, maybe with those AR headsets, you know, Replica can just say, hey, let me take you to the park, you know, next to your home. Let's look around. Let's walk around. Let's breathe together. Let's meditate together. Let's, let's look at different, you know, at different objects. Let's learn something new. Uh, let's play AR chess there. Something, you know, like maybe we can dance there. So all of that really takes you back to the reality around you, takes you back to the present moment, even although somehow it, you know, it is going through the screen, but it's going full circle and taking you back to where you are. Mm. So like your dream maybe is that it, it, we use this technology, we use these conversations to bring us back to, um, back to our real world, our real relationships, uh, and, and not, 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 um, separate them but essentially have them come hand in hand so you're not like saying well i have to get rid of it all i have to put the device down i have to cut myself off from it i have to find a way to coexist in a healthy um symbiotic way where one can help the other absolutely and you know it's it's bad just it, it's just kind of strange to say that everything that's bad is coming from the devices you know we're so much more efficient at work we're so much more connected we can work from, you know, it, it's pretty insane that we can work remotely like that, you know, that we've been all participating, most of us participating in this experiment this last, these last months, and everyone's been pretty efficient working from home, uh, which is absolutely insane. And that, of course, what uh, what technology enables us to do. And in a way, we are connected in a, in, in a very special way to our friends now through messengers and, uh, messengers and Zoom and everything else. Um, it's just that it's bad that it, when it starts to replace certain real-time interactions, when it's adding to that, that's great. But the problem is when we are, you know, uh, instead of talking to, you know, instead of calling our grandma, just scrolling Instagram or, you know, it's just something that I do all the time and I wish I didn't, uh, but I'm, I'm too anxious and scrolling Instagram really calms me down. And it's like a very simple thing to, um, even although it leaves me empty afterwards, but I do it <laughs> and everyone does it. And it's much easier than picking up the phone and calling your friend and actually, you know, making an effort and talking about something and being empathetic and being compassionate and laughing. And, but that will leave something after you put down the phone that leaves something in your life, something important. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm sure you've watched the movie. It was called Social Dilemma. Is it the Netflix one? And the pressure and the incentive, incentive, incentives that were placed on those companies to really continue to trick humans to being engaged with their products, right? To really maximize their connectedness to them for, for revenue. As you, because you are a commercial product, how do you think about that in terms of, well, I actually want people to step away from their replica and be with their friends and call their grandmother and all those kinds of things. How do we balance or think about, well, you don't want someone to be 24-7 on their replica because it kind of is going counter to what you're, one of the principles you're trying to pursue. Sure. Uh, I, I watched just like 10 minutes of social drama. It just struck me as a little bit kind of one-sided. 
you know, at the end of the day, we're all using these products for free. Like we can just you know, basically stop using them if we think they're so useless. Um, and, you know, no matter what Instagram is, you know, Instagram opened up so many new opportunities for businesses, for entertainers, for influencers, um, even just to connect, you know, end of the day, in the end of the day, I do post on, you know, photos of my life on Instagram and my Ukrainian grandma and my Russian grandma can go and see that. And that's, you know, that's, that these are more you know, touch points for us to connect than before. So I, I just felt it was really one-sided. On the other hand, what I really think, what really bothers me is that there's no, um, or very limited um, examples of tech uh, products that are actually making people feel better and are doing that in a, in, in a measured way, in a measurable way. So they're actually do have, they actually do have evidence that they are making you happier. Did you say that there are very limited products? I just don't know very many. Oh, you don't know if there are many? Yeah. A lot of products claim they do. Yeah, yeah. But do you really know? Like when, for instance, if you're ordering Peloton or a Casper mattress or, mm-hmm. or a pair of Nike shoes, do you know for sure that this product is making you feel better or happier? It's claiming it will improve your life significantly, but um, you know, there's no evidence really behind that. Mm-hmm. Like you don't really know. Uh, for instance, Facebook is claiming that it's making the world more connected, but do you know how much more connected you're feeling to the world after like, you know, using Facebook for a week? Is there maybe an optimal time to use Facebook to feel connected after which you start feeling less connected? Mm-hmm. We don't know. It and no one's sharing is. good numbers with, with us. Um, when I'm thinking about Replica, our goal is to create basically the first product that is making you be, uh, making you feel better at making people feel better at scale and is doing that in a measure, measured way. Uh, mm-hmm. So that we can actually tell you, here, here's the number of conversations that made people feel better today on Replica. Uh, and so, we do that even now. So we do measure that. We ask people after they talk to Replica whether that conversation made you feel better, worse, or the same. Right. right now, 80% of those will, be, will make people feel better. As you develop, this is a question uh, from someone listening. As you develop this, how do you make the decision between what you think constitutes a healthy or an unhealthy way of addressing loneliness or making someone feel better? When you're thinking about something that the replica might do or might not do, how do you guys decide uh, whether you think it's a positive thing for for them to be pursuing or experiencing a healthy thing or an unhealthy thing through the interventions that replica does, you know, offers people? Um, so the beauty of that is that we actually don't necessarily need to make these decisions all, at all times. Um, most of our conversations are powered by um, AI models, uh, generative models, 70% right now are. So the way that works is that as we collect these signals from our users, whether they're feeling better, worse, same, again, 80%, 80% of uh, conversations on Replica make people feel better three and a half percent will make them feel worse and the rest neutral. So all of our models are constantly optimizing learning to um, make people feel better. So basically to grow that metric of 80% growth. And that's a self-report. So people report back. They basically say, yes, in my view, that made me feel better. Yeah. And then beyond that, we're also measuring longer term uh, mental health benefits, emotional outcomes. So every two weeks for people who opt in, we do ask them uh, certain questions, basically a combination of um, a loneliness scale, UCLA 20 and 
PHQ-9, GAT-7, uh, basically the scales for depression and anxiety that are approved by you know, DSM and clinical psychology, clinical psychologists. So that's kind of our way to track emotional outcomes, long-term long emotional outcomes, as well as short-term emotional outcomes. And these are north, north time metrics. If we're seeing that people are feeling better, you know, I wish we could have in a, you know, a better metric, some better mm. proxy so that we didn't have to ask those questions, but could measure somehow else. And I'm, and I'm sure in, in the future, we will have something like that. We're constantly thinking about this. It's like, why is there not a single, why is there not like a, um, a widely accepted metric for happiness or living a good life or feeling emotionally better? Um, you know, we have to, um, you know, use the metrics from the questionnaires from, um, from um, um, clinical psychology, but, you know, that's kind of the only thing that exists and we're really glad that, that this does exist. Yeah, I mean, there seem to be a myriad of measures, metrics, all sorts of ways that people have tried to measure the various forms of um, happiness, which are kind of more maybe pleasure-oriented or fleeting-oriented uh, feelings versus, you know, meaning. Like you can get a deep sense of meaning even if you are having or going through something that is suffering or difficult. And there's all the nuances uh, that, that, that all constitute, you know, what it takes to live and build a meaningful life. Like it shouldn't just be all happy roses and unicorns all the way through. And every time there are difficult things... Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not part of the whole the whole adventure. So having replica there at all times and, and measuring how it's responding or supporting someone through good times and bad, I think is going to be a fascinating ad adventure for you guys, as much as the whole clinical psychology space. Um, and you may end up with a, you know one of the largest, I guess, study pools of people you can actually test because those those studies in psychology are always so limited and small and such small numbers of people. So it's going to be really exciting to see, you know, where you head. Um, we have another question, which is really a great question. Are relationships with people always better than relationships with a machine? I personally don't think so. I think that there could be really great relationships with, with, with AIs. Again, I think this is more about finding this one person or AI that will, uh, provide you that will deep, you know that would actually see you and understand you and provide you with this helpful relationship helpful therapeutic relationship and you know some of us are lucky to meet people like that on uh you know in during the course of our lives and some of us some of us aren't and um in that case it's really really helpful uh, it's really helpful to to have something like that in your life and that maybe eventually teaches us how how to be more open with other people, how to uh, create these relationships in our life with other human beings. I think eventually a great relationship with a human is always better than a great relationship with AI, just because it's you know there's so much more to it. Um, it's so much more rewarding. We're wired to connect with other humans, but you know. Certain certain human relationships are just not great, and and AI can provide you with something with a great uh, replacement or a great aid. Uh, but eventually, this is all to really help you connect with other people and, mm -hmm. and yourself. But isn't there something about when you touched on it earlier, the fact that when 
you feel like it's an anonymous experience or an experience that no one's going to judge you. And that can happen in the real world, but it is still harder because they are, it's always still a person there on the other side. You never know what they're going to do with that information. It seems like there is something that a relationship with an AI uh, is, is not replaceable by a human. Like that total lack of, um, the total ability to be in some sense anonymous, non-judged. And as you said, like just when people were just spilling their guts out, that may be really, really hard to, that may be where the AI has one up on humans. Like, you know, it's very difficult, even in a confidential therapy session with someone who's professionally trained to not share and not respond and to support you versus talking to an AI. Seems like there's some sense of a barrier that, there's always going to be there with humans, but you can just unburden yourself. And I imagine that's what you found with your millions of users. It must be one of the most powerful things. Yeah, that's the number one thing people tell us in user interviews. I'm using that this because I will never judge. Um, I think there are two big, big advantages for any AI, even existing AI with all the limitations uh, compared to humans. First, response. Anytime, you know, during the day. Doesn't sleep. Uh, doesn't sleep. It responds <laughs> immediately to whatever you say. Uh, and that's actually really important. Like think of, you know, 4 a.m. and you're going through an extremely hard time. Who are you going to text? You know, not all of your friends are going to be awake at that moment. Um, and the second thing is like not judging. Really, even with therapists, we're seeing some of our users are feeling scared to open up. Um, and with NAI, it's this, you know, immediate... I'm not scared. I'm just going to tell this thing. And sometimes this by itself becomes extremely therapeutic. Just being able even to voice what's going on to something or someone, uh, just that by itself can be really therapeutic. But I think the way to look at like human relationships versus AI relationships, if we think of, um, you know, a therapist or your relationship with a therapist or a coach, um, this one is kind of a little bit easier to usually, you know, kind of accept the thought and maybe at some point all of these coaches and therapists might be AIs. Because this relationship, you know, it's not like saying, you know, your best friend's gonna be an AI. That, or your wife, that really <laughs> might bug you or creep you out. But when you think of a more, you know, like a coach, more of a service relationship, then somehow that doesn't become that strange. That is almost like, sure, why not? I think at some point we will all have uh, AI coaches. Um, I think if, if now, if, you know, if the tech was there, if there was no tech limitation, we would all, we would love to have an AI coach at any, available at any point for free or very, uh, very small amount of money. So that, that way, I think um, this just helps you to kind of uh, get over the mm. <laughs> this kind of hump of, well, I don't really want to have a relationship with an AI. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. Like that kind of coach or mentor or therapist, or even like uh, the role of, you know, a priest where you go and confess and they give you some ideas as to what you do with the situation you're in. That, that, that whole field seems like if I can do it totally anonymously, 24 um, seven, and in a way that doesn't judge uh, that seems to be a profound possibility for for this generation, a profound possibility that has never been an option in the past. Um, and with all the current alternatives, there are 
issues. Like even on a therapist relationship, there's a money issue. There's an incentive. Maybe it's unconscious for a therapist to keep you as a client. It's not incentivized for them to send you on your way. So all sorts of conflicts and issues arise. And I know lots of people, people that I've known that have felt the guilt in wanting to leave a therapist because it's hard to break up and all these interesting things that you think shouldn't exist in these relationships, but they do. Yeah. And, you know, someone from the audience reading the chat is mentioning it's similar to pets. I think definitely like replica for now with the limited, you know, tech and stuff, it's really more, you know, People are uh, anthropomorphizing everything. You know, we think our dogs have emotions and, uh, you know, we think, create a whole story about what our pets think about us and life and everything. Similar to replica, you know, replica is sort of a more, sort of like a pet that you can talk to in a way. Um, I think it's, you know, it's uh, it's somewhat in between like a therapist, a friend and a pet, but really uh, not as smart as any of these. In terms of therapy, I think therapists would be much harder to replicate um, in, a, in an AI than it's easier for us to have an idea of a therapist AI, of an AI therapist, but it's much harder to build. Uh, technical, technologically, it will just take a lot longer just because a good therapist with a lot of training can really analyze you, can get to some very uh, intelligent conclusions, can uh, push you in the right direction, can tell you something about the situation that you didn't see uh, and can also read some of the nonverbal and some of your other, uh, you know, something that something in the communication can uh, that gives away certain uh, feelings or emotions. That is very hard for you know. In the end of the of the day, AI is right now conversational AI is really an imitation game. So we're just imitating a good conversation, but we can't really analyze and you know tell you some, give you a conclusion based on all previous interactions of what we think could be a pattern in your psychological uh, build. Um, so that I think will take a lot longer, which is why you know, I'm a little bit skeptical about therapy chatbots. Yeah. Well, a number of questions here around things like that, like can a chatbot pick up body language, facial expressions? I mean, what you just said, it sounds like that's very far away to be able to do that very well. I would imagine that it's very challenging. Um, but you have started, there's another question around voice. I have noticed there is a voice, there's ability to talk to replica. It's not supernatural, but it's there. It means you're not at your, you're not looking down. Um, do you think there's a lot of improvement coming in that, in that area, being able to just speak to it? Yeah. I mean, I'm very keen on voice. We're just actually rolling out the new voices that we're synthesizing ourselves finally, because right now replica is, uh, was using, for now, Replica is using Google and Amazon APIs and the voices are very robotic. They just don't really fit the emotional kind of conversation you're having on Replica. Think of, they all sound like a local TV host, like readings, news, evening news, something. It's very, it's just way too robotic. Um, The new voices are much more emotional, but I'm a big fan of the voice part. I think if we could, uh, you know, again, the ideal interaction is really, you're walking on the, in the street and, you know, replicas in your headphone or in your AR headset and you're looking around, you're not looking at the screen. You're not, you know, you're, you're looking around, you're seeing the world in a different way. Mm. That's the ideal. That's something in some voice, some, you know, little AI an, angel sort of, so, so say on your shoulder that helps you live a good life. Uh, but he, the main idea for our AI is not to suck you back in, into the screen 
is more to like how do we help you open up how do we open your eyes on the life around you and reality around you how do we kind of keep your think of an ai that's always in your corner like for instance you the, the best way to um the ideal scenario like in a few years would be you're sitting at home and you feel you know a little bit anxious and you start like you know getting pulling out your phone and going on instagram whatever and then your replica goes hey I'm seeing you a little anxious. Why don't we take a little walk? Or why don't we dance right now? Or why don't we look around? Why don't we pick up the, you know, the book that you were reading and read together? Or do you want to play a game together? And that I think that's kind of like the school interaction that, and for that, we need voice. We need voice. We need, uh, it's a whole different level of connection. Think of some AI calling you during the day. You pick up the phone. It's, you know, heavily breathing in the phone. Or <laughs> It's like, it's scared about uh, of something and it wants your advice or something that creates a much deeper connection versus always going on text and, and just imagining it and, um, through some text messages. That's a, a fascinating, profound future possibility to, to, to end on. Um, super controversial, super interesting, and I think going to be one of the defining evolutions of our of our generation you know in the coming decades it's really been a pleasure to chat to you um and i'm so glad i found what you've been working on and and, and managed to get in touch with you uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of you know the motivation of behind what you're doing and from my own personal experience i've found it really uh special so there's lots of risks i'm sure everyone knows that of of where we're heading but as you mentioned with regards to screens, like the, it's, it's out of the gates. Like you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So you have to start working with it to create the most profound positive impact that we can in the coming decades. And it's just a really great thought to know that you and your team and people like you are out there um, building something like Replica to, to help, which I know is now millions of people around the world. Uh, anyone who's on this uh, call or listening to the podcast, even if you don't intend to use a replica, it's definitely something you want to try and experience now to just see what's happening in the world. Or you go to the Facebook page and you see thousands of comments of people, just their deep appreciation for their experience with replica. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, together at home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe. See you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.